Welcome to Let's Break Good, the podcast where good is just not good enough. I'm your host, Joe Agoda, and today we are lucky to have a two-for-one, an interview with the leadership team at Public Lab. So far this season, we have had corporate and social entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, and now we're going to get a perspective on what it takes to break good as the leader of a nonprofit organization. The team Shannon and Jeff help lead, Public Lab, develops and applies open source tools to environmental exploration and investigation. By democratizing inexpensive and accessible do-it-yourself techniques, Public Lab creates a collaborative network of practitioners who actively reimagine the human relationship with the environment. Welcome, Shannon and Jeff. Let's get started. So here's my first question that we ask all our guests, and we'll start with you, Shannon, but then we'll go over to you, Jeff. I want to know, Shannon, when did you first realize that you had to have purpose at the heart of your professional career? What were the early experiences and inspirations that led you down your career path? So um, I think the, well, the, the earliest experiences um, of note are that both of my parents were social workers. So I think it's, uh, it's always been embedded in me that um, the the things that I do in my life have to serve a greater good than just myself. Um, and, you know, I didn't ever have the, the desire to actually go into the field of social working, but um, I, through all of the, the various things that I've done in my life, have been uh, really interested in uh, creating spaces for people to come together and um, to learn from one another and to collaborate and um, to be creative. Um, I had a very difficult time myself getting through high school and to finish out uh, my high school career. Um, I was put into an alternative school that focused on uh, community service projects. So one of my earliest experiences working um, in kind of the environment um, and human health round uh, was with a organization called the Urban Ecology Center, uh, teaching young kids how to rock climb and to kayak and taking them hiking, um, things that I actually myself had not done uh, previously, uh, except for hiking. Um, and these are really, you know, cool experiences to see how, uh, you know, being out in a place and experiencing, uh, nature, experiencing, um, the urban ecology of, uh, waterways, you know, in a city that these kids had never seen, um, could really be transformative. And I also ran in my, you know, late teens and, and early twenties, uh, a skateboarding store and, um, kind of a, uh, informal community center. Um, and it was there that I think the idea about what I wanted to do with my life was really embedded. Uh, so I had literally, you know, no interest in actually selling anything, um, but loved the space, loved the community uh, that was built up around uh, the kids that would come in um, and, you know, would spend kind of endless hours drawing and break dancing and listening to music and learning how to spin records. Uh, and that's really what drives me now is how do we create spaces um, that can, you know, really help people to bloom um, and think differently about uh, the trajectory of their own lives. Thanks, Shannon. I really like this alternative path that you've taken with a little bit of fun, a little bit of breakdancing, uh, skateboarding store. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing that story. Um, how about you, Jeff? Uh, what kind of early experiences or what inspired you down your path uh, to a professional career with purpose? Uh, I think um, when I was in in school, the um, person who had a lot of influence in my life was Natalie Dermajenko. She's a, a scientist, a technologist, and artist who does a lot of work uh, that um, you know addresses environmental issues. It is collaborative. She works with communities, and she's really like always pushing very hard on questions about power. And how that comes through in you know technologies and so forth, and, and I think that a lot of that was new material for me at that at that age, and and um, you know hadn't been part of my education, uh, and um, you know she she has projects that are strange and and uh, kind of strangely gripping, like um, she had us in my freshman year uh, like modify robotic toy dogs to 
try to sniff or sense um, volatile organic compounds. Uh, and uh, it, so that kind of work and because of the way that it uses narrative and the way that it, uh, you know, it's premised on like collaborations with people and with communities. Um, I think that had a, a big influence in my, in my, uh, in my career and, or sort of my, my life choices. I also would say like the, the people I've, you know, gotten to know and built collaborations with at public lab have had a huge influence on, on me and how I see the world, uh, you know, like Shannon, uh, like other people on the leadership team, like Stevie and Liz and, and really people we work with in our organizers network have so many different ideas and experiences and, and sort of, you know, stories, uh, and people I'm very close to now have had, you know, through this network have, have played a big role. Thanks. Jeff. I want to ask you actually each a follow-up question. Cause there's one kind of commonality that I think I heard in both of your inspiration stories, and that was questioning norms and questioning status quo. Uh, it's something we talk a lot about at the podcast that we are looking to do for the social good sector. But it sounds like you both had an experience or had some kind of feeling that you know you didn't want to take a normal path, and you wanted to push back on that kind of the norms. So I'm wondering if there was any other little story or something that you remember on the path you took. And I'll start with you, Shannon, and then I'll go to you, Jeff. Uh, is there anything, any, you know, experience or thing you remember when you really felt like I want to push back against the status quo? Is there anything you experienced or, or, or felt during those early years? Um, I, I think maybe somewhat unfortunately, especially for my parents, that was a, an everyday thing for me. Um, I've, I don't know. I've just never been somebody that is content with um, the exact moment that I'm in. I'm really trying to work on that as an adult. Um, but I, I think I move very quickly to the next thing. Um, and so I think, you know, when I was younger and you're, you're sent into this system, this education system that tells you to go from one classroom to the next and read the books that are prescribed and take the tests that are going to, you know, put you within a set of indicators. Um, my, my approach was always, just why and why, you know, it was like I, I had this kind of repetitive thing that I didn't uh, get rid of from when I was a toddler. <laughs> um, so I can't really put it on, on one moment, but I think it's just an innate curiosity um, and uh, really desire to, to push at what, you know, society says are the rules and the, the boundaries that we're supposed to live within. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, um, I think I'm still sort of learning what the answer to that is. Um, I, uh, I feel like, <clears throat> like, uh, there's a lot of ways that, um, growing up, uh, like I stepped sideways into things, uh, in, in good and bad ways. Um, like, you know, like, I don't know, like I studied architecture as an undergraduate, um, and, but I, I've never practiced that. And the skills I developed there, you know, um, they, they definitely serve me today in very different ways. Um, but I also think there's a lot to do with identity um, that plays a role in this. I mean, I think um, like growing up as an Asian American person in the US is complicated for a lot of different reasons. Um, and that is something that I've learned more about as an adult, I think, or like learned looking back on things and understanding that part of my identity and how that uh, structures my interaction with other people in a way that I think is really uh, a powerful part of my, the way I see things today. So I think that's something that I like was experiencing. Uh, and I think earlier on without knowing it. Interesting. I mean, I think what definitely resonates with my experience as well is that number one, early questioning of why, why does it need to be this way? I think very much early on in my university years on through my graduate and my early experiences in the nonprofit and social sector was why does it need to be this way? Why can't we think differently? Um, I never took the, well, it's always been this way. And as soon as that was like the radar belts for me, right? Is that someone said, well, this is the way it's been, or this is the role you're supposed to take was like alarm bells. Like, okay, well, that's definitely not what we should be doing then. <laughs> we should be thinking differently. Um, so both of those definitely 
you know, both of your stories, um, you know, and also the identity one of being introspective is also something that I found I continuously do, um, you know, looking at myself as a humanitarian or whatever we're trying to do in the identity of those who we work with and knowing how fluid um, and how different experiences can be. So that we've dug a little bit into both of your backgrounds. Maybe we can now start looking towards how these experiences in, you know, they, you know, you've grown and all of a sudden you get this opportunity uh, to found and bring together Public Lab. So Shannon, I'm wondering if you could start the story of how Public Lab got started. Um, I know a little bit about it, but I'm hoping you can share with our audience who may not know uh, anything at all. Sure. Um, you know, and I'm going to tell it from my perspective and I'm sure Jeff is going to have, uh, you know, totally different take and, um, definitely additional things, um, that he'll want to contribute. But, um, so in 2009 and early 2010, I was working with a small, uh, nonprofit organization in New Orleans, uh, that was focused on supporting communities that live adjacent to oil refining facilities that neighbor um, the Mississippi River. There's lots of them. Um, and uh, helping to set up community monitoring programs using a, um, a tool that's called the bucket. And it's literally a five-gallon bucket um, that you can take a uh, grab air sample from or, or using. Um, and in April of 2010, um, I remember we were in the car, I was with a couple of colleagues and we were driving to, uh, one of the communities that we support and over the radio, we heard that, um, there had been a massive explosion in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and, uh, that was the beginning of the BP oil disaster. Um, so the, the initial moments of um, public lab were, you know, kind of unfortunately born from uh, this very critical moment um, in our environmental health history. Um, and the, the way that uh, I met Jeff and uh, a couple of the other founders, in, including Stuart Long and Adam Griffith, uh, you know, as well as a number of other people that have um, long-term been part of the, the broader public lab community um, is that uh, I was working on outreach and, and response um, with the oil spill, launching a very early instance of uh, the Ushahidi crisis map um, software to basically document and track and collect reports from people um, as they were coming in. Um, we were sending outreach teams across the Gulf. Uh, and I think what happened, and Jeff, you might have to correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, we sort of learned about each other. Jeff was off, you know, flying balloons and doing really cool uh, kind of like DIY tech stuff and um, interesting contexts. Um, and we were featured in an article together. Um, and that's how we connected. And um, this is a totally inaccurate remembrance, but um, I, I feel like my meet moment with Jeff is him standing in the doorway of this very tiny nonprofit on Canal Street in New Orleans, you know, with a big red balloon and being like, who wants to go fly balloons? Um, so it was, you know, the, the moment was connecting uh, this, you know, very deep embedded community-based work with uh, DIY technology um, that Jeff had been utilizing and developing, I think, as part of his degree. Um, and we started working together, uh, you know, training people in City Park, which was several blocks away from the office, um, on how to fly balloons and kites that were tethered um, really, really high in the air, you know, thousands of feet. Um, with very simple point-and-shoot camera setups. Um, and then we worked with people on figuring out the, the best places to then go out on the Gulf of Mexico uh, and actually launch the kites and balloons they had been learning um, how to, to use. Uh, and the, the point was that we were seeing a very vast media blackout. So we weren't getting good information coming from the spill as residents of the Gulf Coast region. Um, and we wanted to be able to say, you know, we've gone out and we've seen it for ourselves and we're sharing the images. Um, and some of the, the you know, shots that we collected out of the 200,000 plus images that came um, from these very basic community satellites uh, are incredibly powerful in terms of the the context that they tell you about um, how the, the oil spill progressed across the Gulf of Mexico during this particular time. Thanks, Shannon. And okay, so now Jeff, tell us your kind of origin story of how you came to maybe meet this this almost like a superheroes unite environmental superheroes unite crew that became Public Lab. I remember walking into the Louisiana Bucket Brigade and and, and meeting people and and the energy and the the 
the feeling of urgency um, and shared purpose of that moment. I, th- I think that f- for, you know, and w- a lot of what was going through my mind was um, the difference between that kind of, you know, th- that kind of attitude, that set of attitudes, that kind of um, focus and the contrast with where I had just been like a day or two before at, at MIT and the complete absence of those things in the, in that place. Um, you know, I, I met a lot of, um, you know, great people and people I care about, um, you know, at, at MIT, uh, the couple of years I was there, but, but just institutionally, I think for me, it was a real, um, awakening that, that, you know, stories that were told about where important ideas or, um, you know, insights or innovations or whatever the words are you, you want to use stories that were told about where those come from. It's a kind of a mythology. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't great things that, that do come out of academic institutions, but there's also such distance from the real world. I mean, they're, they're so stuck in, in a certain cultural frame. And so for me, it was like very like liberating to just, actually be engaging with people. And, and I had been working with other people as well outside of the oil spill scenario where like uh, folks in, in Peru where, where I've uh, lived for uh, a little while um, before going to MIT and uh, connecting with people there and doing balloon mapping and um, uh, doing, you know, uh, land claim sort of work uh, using aerial photography. Uh, and, and similarly, uh, it was so far away from the academic context, but in such a powerful and inspiring way in terms of the difference in attitudes and the difference in, you know, uh, the importance of the work and the way people engage with it. Uh, so that for me was a, an important moment. Um, it just in my personal journey as to the, the starting of public lab, I think that that spirit really plays into it very strongly that people, all the original founders of public lab of which there were seven in the organization and many more who were, who were just involved at a sort of grassroots level. Um, uh, a lot of us met during that, that moment. So I think that was, um, that was a really important formative moment and that sort of collaborative grassroots tone of how we were able to connect up. What I, I find really interesting is that there's this crisis and disaster and it's bringing people together. I mean, I vividly remember the kind of video stream of the oil coming out of the pipe into the ocean. And I remember feeling totally helpless about it. Um, so I'm really inspired by the fact that you decided not to wait for other people to do anything, that you were going to take action right away. So, you know, something that also tied both of your stories together was it again, you weren't going to wait for other people to do it. Shannon, you talked about not, you weren't going to wait for the media to start talking about. There seemed to be a media blackout. There was no information coming out of it. Jeff, you talked about there was a lack of action that you've been seeing from the academic world that you were just there and there's all these really smart people, but they're not taking action. So this was a, obviously a bonding moment where you kind of found your tribe. You found the people that you were going to connect with and, and want to work with. And I'm wondering, you know, when you came together in this first experience, were there any challenges that you faced? Was there any pushback? Because what I find is when there's times when a lot of people aren't doing it, there's a reason. So Shane, I'll go to you first. When you all came together, the oil spill's going on, and you're saying, hey, we need to, you know, group together and document what's going on. Uh, and you start doing it. Was there challenges? Was it easy? Was it hard? What was it like? Um, I think it's one of the hardest things I've ever done, probably. <laughs> um, I, you know, and I would just like a minor correction is that, um, it, you know, the, the BP spill, it certainly was not a case of the media not wanting to take good documentation. It was that there were all of these things that started, you know, regulations and restrictions that started to be put in place by the people controlling uh, the, the disaster and how it was unfurling and how people were viewing it. Um, that were, were restricting access. Um, I mean, our, you know, our challenges during this time were everything 
as small as, you know, like we had to try out all these different balloons because they kept popping because the sun is too hot in Louisiana. Um, you know, when we're, we're out floating it and all of a sudden we would have a camera falling from a couple thousand feet above us, um, to, you know, being on a boat and not having, uh, an, you know, a rock that was the right size or a fishbone that we could tie on to, um, you know, press down the trigger of the camera all the way to making sure that, um, the, the images that were being collected and, you know, the stories that, uh, were being disseminated alongside those images were accurately reflecting, uh, you know, residents specifically of the the Gulf Coast region, um, and the you know the way that they were experiencing the disaster and and all all forms um, in which one can experience something like that. Um, you know, I think the it was I you know to be honest, I um, I attribute a lot to this really amazing team uh, that started to coalesce at the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. Um, and it ranged from all these really interesting people that were uh, actually working at the, the organization at the time to uh, groups of you know um, interested parties and, and volunteers who had no other way to get involved in this unseen disaster that was happening so close to New Orleans. Um, and so it was, it was almost like you would be in the office and um, all of a sudden there's like 50 people surrounding you and really energized about, you know, going out and um, addressing these complex issues and figuring out how we could get around, you know, physical barricades and uh, technical barricades that we were experiencing. Um, so it was a, a really, really uh, challenging thing to take on. Um, and I don't know if I slept for <laughs> you know, three months during that period. But uh, it was also so exciting because I think all of us started to experience the possibility of what can happen when you, you know, pair um, people who understand uh, understand local place, um, who are organizers, um, who know how to teach and share with other people, um, and who can then, you know, help to infuse that whole coalition with uh um, really interesting tools that are, um, you know, kind of easy to use and, and can be accessible in different localized contexts. And that was what we were creating in that initial moment. What I love about what you shared there is one thing we talk about, about what breaking good means is when you say, well, good is just not good enough. So you think you made an important correction that, yeah, the media was talking about it and there was some information coming out, but you saw that there were regulations, there were restrictions, and you said, well, what's coming out is not good enough. So we're going to get in there and we're going to do it ourselves. And that's a feeling that for our audience, you know, when you see a challenge and you feel that inside of you, it's when it's time to act. It's probably maybe the most important time to act. Uh, so now, Jeff, over to you, because you, I think, are coming in from more of the technology side where maybe you've tested some of these aerial mapping techniques with balloons and kites, but it sounds like you get there and this is the real world application and maybe it's not as, as you know, as easy as, the, you know, as it, as it might seem to someone on the outside. So tell me what it was like when you're now faced with actually trying to take some of the things that you've created and put them into action in this kind of almost emergent, urgent feeling uh, situation. Part of this is about that that that's actually like the model that we're we are taught in in you know like if you watch like a TED talk or something like or you think you talk to people in academia or you know tech developers there's this idea of like design a technology and then go like find how it will work in the real world but I think that what I learned a lot about was how that's upside down um, and how like real ideas and, and, you know, if you want to call them like innovations or, 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 you know, things like that, they, they, um, they come from people doing things in the real world. And, and actually when they appear in like a lab or an institution or a company, that's just a formalization of it. You know, uh, many of these ideas already existed out in the world. And I think that flip is maybe one of the most important insights about where technologies come from and who develops them and who's responsible for them and, and sort of what their, what their, their life cycle is, so to speak. Um, and I think that's one of the things that really underpins the work we do at public cloud. I find that like very interesting and something, a, a kind of a theme that has come out in a lot of the interviews and stories that we do, which is that, you know, often we come in thinking we have the solution, but you need to be the one 
on the front line experiencing the problem and that's where you know the rubber hits the road so is there anything you know if you don't have a story that's okay was there anything from this experience you know around the response to the oil spill that you remember uh where you kind of started to to really feel that what you've just explained there which was that that flip of you know you can create something well and good in the lab but when you get out in the field that's where the real learning begins like i've very literally heard from people at uh you know at my at my work that like you know advisors of mine who said like i th- i think the experts have it under control <laughs> like I, that was like literally what what people said and and actually you know sort of re- renouncing that idea and sort of rejecting it, I think is, was a really important uh, part of the process. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think one that, that I know Shannon remembers as well is like um, there's this little, it's such a little thing, but it's so symbolic. I think there's this um, thing we do, like when you take an aerial photo with a kite, which is you, you hold the button of the camera down the trigger. So it's just taking pictures one after the other and you got to hold it down with something. So you use a rubber band, and you hold something over the trigger button to, to keep it held down because obviously you can't keep your hand on it while it's up in the air. And, uh, and like, you know, we had used, I don't even remember, Shannon, what was it? We used like little bits of cardboard or like a, something like that. And at the beach, it just got wet. Yeah, so the fishbone, that was my favorite thing, which is, uh, I mean, Shannon, do you want to tell it? <laughs> no, I mean, this, you know, it's uh, it's... I think for me, it was like one of those instances of being overtired and disorganized and reaching into your bag and coming up with a handful of Q-tips, which, you know, um, were not working to do the job, rubber bands, and then being like, what am I going to use on this camera? I'm sitting on a boat. Oh, there's a leftover fishbone. That will will suffice in this instance. (laughs) So like the rubber band like held the fishbone against the button, and that's what kept the camera going. Um, And I mean, that, you know, like I said, that's a small example. It's symbolic. You know, but the, that's what these these techniques are made up of, of like a hundred or a thousand instances of that, you know. And, and that's the suggestion I give to anyone who's, you know, getting inspired by this story is, you know, like, well, how, how does that happen to me? How do I get my fishbone story? What I say is that's why if you want this to be part of your career, the first thing I say is go out there and experiencing it without any kind of uh, prejudgment uh, because when you get down to that location, whether it be a, you know, a dusty road in a, in a rural village in Africa, or it's on the beach in new Orleans uh, where you're just trying to get the camera to take pictures, you know, that's when you're going to have, you know, where the necessity will get you to innovate and come towards little things that start to add up to something bigger, which I think helps me segue to kind of, my next question, which I'll, I'll pose to you, Shannon, first, which is I think one of the hardest things we hear in the nonprofit sector is that, okay, when there's a crisis, when there's emergency, there's lots of attention, there's media, okay, we can get resources, we can get people involved. But as soon as the, you know, the lights, as they say, die down and the TV cameras go away, that's when things get hard because you need to continue that momentum of things you've learned without the same maybe you know average person being excited and wanting to get involved in it. So maybe you can take us now from, you know, you've done this amazing work during the uh, BP oil spill of kind of being citizen journalists, uh, citizen scientists, getting images of what the impact of the oil spill is that no one else is getting. Um, and But now, you know, at some point that ends. So how does things continue and how do you continue to like uh, develop the organization from there? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is, you know, this is almost 10 years ago now, and uh, it was a moment that there was a, there were a lot of people that were starting to test out how, you know, different forms of media um, and technology could support these, you know, different kinds of activities, not just in the environmental sector, but across the board uh, in journalism uh, you know, in humanitarian crises, uh, the you know the whole crisis mappers community was really evolving at this period, um, and so it was a uh, it was a time that we were able to step back and say, okay, so we've done this thing, and we're going to you know continue to be involved and in, uh, going forward in the BP disaster. But 
we're also looking at uh, a landscape and a, a broader um, kind of perspective on uh, on community-based monitoring. And it's, you know, there's a lot that could be done in this area that we could contribute based on what we successfully did during the BP spill. Um, and we started to think, you know, what can we, what can we contribute um, to the, the many, many communities and uh, people that are out there um, already addressing environmental injustices and, and organizing um, around, uh, you know, environmental health issues. Um, and the, you know, one of the things was our take on um, DIY technology and accessible open source technology um, and being able to contribute uh, new tools for people being able to monitor and, and measure um, and tell stories differently of the, the experiences that they were having. Um, and the second was really, you know, and I think one of our, our deepest and biggest contributions um, to uh, the, the broader fields and world in which we live is rethinking um, and really questioning how science um, is being done, uh, you know, in public spaces and saying that it, it wasn't just about a scientist proposing a question and uh, having people, you know, provide data to answer that question, but um, that science can be used as a tool for community members that, that have their own questions um, and it can help them work through the process of you know, collecting data um, or formulating that question, interpreting, and then um, working towards goals and objectives that they've set, um, not just, you know, kind of in the, the more popularized world of science, peer-reviewed papers, for instance. Um, so those were things that we were really thinking about um, as we started to evolve public lab. Um, and like you were saying, you know, we, we recognized that the, the BP spill was a, uh, a a big disaster. It was emblematic, um, but that lots of environmental crises and environmental health crises um, are very long-term. They're slow moving um, and they're, they're difficult to see. You know, you have to, it's like putting a 5,000 piece puzzle together um, to make all of the, the different dots connect. And, you know, we are we were, and we are very committed to um, figuring out what our part in uh, building a stronger movement around addressing these injustices uh, can be. Great. Uh, so I'm going to go over to Jeff for a follow-up and then back to you, Shannon. So uh, one thing that you mentioned there that kind of helped you to evolve and grow the organization was this idea of do-it-yourself. Uh, actually, how I got to know Public Lab was through a participatory mapping project in Brazil. And we talked about that uh, earlier in the season of the podcast. Uh, and I was really inspired by it, the approach the team, the Public Lab team brought to the table, the kind of like, we're not going to, you're going to do it yourself and here's how. So Jeff, you know, you've done a lot in the DIY space. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your perspective on the power of DIY and how you think that helped fuel Public Lab from this early stage as it, you know, started to continue to grow after the BP oil spill. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, I think DIY as a movement is really interesting. People people forget that, like, that, you know, patents didn't exist and people just made things. And, you know, um, so there's this sort of, uh, uh, reawakening of an old idea. Um, and, uh, but I also think there's like a, there's a, there's a really positive aspect to it. That's part of that, which is that people, I think, uh, essentially are like challenging the, the stories we tell ourselves about where things come from, <laughs> just like we were talking about where ideas or technologies come from. Um, you know, I think, you know, the DIY movement has a lot of different faces and a lot of different, you know, elements, but maybe my favorite part of the part, one part that I think is really important is the creative misuse. Um, when people take something apart or use half of something or, you know, and, and sort of in the balloon mapping sphere, I think that's, a, that's a, that's a classic, you know, a classic example is like the camera that wasn't designed to be put onto a balloon and a balloon that wasn't designed to carry a camera and the string that we bought at Home Depot or whatever. Um, that idea of misuse, creative misuse. Um, but I, I think that the culturally a really important element of DIY is this idea of sort of claiming back the, the agency to decide how the pieces fit together and, and how they can help you get something done that you need done. Um, there's also, of course, many other aspects of the DIY movement, um, uh, that, you know, for example, the sort of uh, exploratory, um, you know, spirit, uh, the 
a lot of it is oriented around, you know, having uh, sort of uh, fun explorations of what you can do with stuff. Um, and I, I think that's wonderful as well. I do think that, um, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, being inspired by the best parts of DIY and the DIY movement and sort of the, the philosophies where they relate to environmental issues and specifically environmental justice issues. Uh, we're more interested in that idea of we're sort of reclaiming and reshaping uh, and the sort of malleability uh, or the, the challenge to uh, the, the way things are uh, through DIY. Um, Although I also think that the the sort of more fun aspects and the educational aspects, especially you know with young people who are using DIY tools and remixing them and learning about the world through them, uh, I think that's also an important element. So I just yeah I think there's different sides of it. I think that there's uh, a lot of power to it, but there's also a, a long history that it sort of just brings. Loved your term creative misuse. I think it encompasses a lot when we talk on the podcast about breaking good because the things that is is about being there's some kind of fun aspect to it, which is you're you're taking something that might not exactly be used, but repurposing it and doing it in a way that maybe challenges people the way they look at it. Um, but there's a fun, there's a creative part of it. There is you think different, you act different, and what you get at the end result maybe still has so much power and impact. And then it has obviously um, a lot of power for the person that's created it. But I also am interested in, you know, Jeff, maybe you can follow up quickly on this one of when you see creative misuse happen, what happens to those around the individual that does it? Do you think that also has an effect on, on those around them when they see the kind of thing that was, was created that is a little bit different? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I, I think that that's sort of, I think what I'm getting at with this sort of, um, <clears throat> With the idea of creative use, I mean, it's that in that sense, DIY is an inherently political act. Um, it's a, it's a, we're surrounded by products that are the the output of you know of capitalism and of, of industrial processes and of, of you know uh, uh, you know companies' visions of the world that are brought to life, and it's it's less and less common. Um, to be surrounded by objects that represent uh, individuals or communities' um, conceptions of what the world is or should be, uh, you know, like how many of the things on my desk right now um, came out of a company as opposed to something that was that was crafted. So I think that when the the moment that that becomes really meaningful, especially in the environmental space, is that it's just to put it simply, like no one is no one is making stuff. You know, no one in industry, no one in sort of the, the sort of the, the trajectory of capitalism is making stuff that is aimed at communities building knowledge about the environmental issues that they face. You know, that's just not like the market isn't like reorienting itself around that problem. Uh, and, and I think that's a that's a pro, that's a major gap. And so DIY is like a response to that in some ways. So, Shannon, I'm going to go back over to you now. Um, I think Jeff has been very eloquently talking about this maybe awakening that individuals can have. And I think you mentioned it too, when they kind of reclaim ownership and their own power to interact with their environment, to measure the impact that we're having on our environment. So there are all these individuals all around the world that are maybe waiting to be woken up or are primed to do it. How do you start collecting and engaging with all these disparate people over the world? How do you get them all together through public lab to start engaging. What are some of the, the, the techniques, the strategies, like what did you do to start kind of growing, growing the network? Sure. And, you know, Jeff has been doing an enormous amount of work on this. So I'm going to, I'm going to flip this question back to him in a bit, but um, you know, we, we started as, um, as a, WordPress site called grassrootsmapping.org, which I think it still exists today. I'm, it, I may be wrong, but I, it might be there. Um, and we 
have spent a lot of our resources on creating publiclab.org as a resource for people to come and collaborate. Um, So whether it is asking uh, environmental questions or looking for other people who are working and thinking about similar topics as they are, technical troubleshooting, telling stories about uh, the, the communities in which they, they live. Um, it's a, it is a place and, you know, um, I'll leave it there. It's a place for people to come and find those types of, uh, you know, collaborative networks that can take their projects and the, the concerns that they have um, to a different place. Um, coupled with that, though, and I think this is really, you know, one of the, the unique parts um, of Public Lab kind of in this day and age, is that we put an enormous amount of resources um, and time into thinking about the, the in-person moments um, because we, we really don't feel like those can be replaced with um, an app or you know a website or even publiclab.org. Uh, that the the time that that people have together, um, you know, especially in a kind of curated and, and facilitated fashion, uh, will get projects and and get um, you know people moving in a, a direction so much more quickly. Um, than any online space um, can help to create. So we we make sure to couple uh, both what we've created online um, with you know really deep and robust um, in person experiences as well. Excellent. And Shane, let me ask one other follow up question. Um, through these in persons, through these kind of growing of your network, are there any other individuals or places that stick out in your mind that kind of exemplify uh, another awakening, another group that kind of decides to do it themselves. Um, are there any other kind of stories as you look back in the years uh, of groups that you think, uh, you know, you want to share with the audience that were kind of inspirational? Um, yeah, but I, I guess maybe I would frame it a bit differently. Um, I think that while Public Lab has, you know, potentially been inspirational for some people, I mean, I, I still love you know, being in various places and running into somebody that's like, oh, I used, you know, your balloon mapping to do something and, you know, somewhere. Um, it's been really incredible to see the uh, the change that's happened and the number of people that are thinking about uh, using community science and the organizing work that they're doing um, so that are incorporating, uh, you know, new low-cost um, or accessible technology and media um, to answer environmental questions. So there's just, there's been a boom of, you know, especially people who are doing water monitoring and air monitoring um, that are thinking about uh, different ways to use imaging uh, to create, uh, you know, stories and, and cases around all of the projects and, and places that they're thinking about. Um, and I think that for us, you know, I, I look I look where we've been influential and I've looked at, you know, where where other people are popping up projects. Um, and that I think for us is, uh, it's just, it's really incredible to see that. Um, and is now, you know, coming back in and, and influencing the work that we're doing and the, uh, the places that we're trying to, to create as well. So like that flip. So I'm going to go back to Jeff then. Jeff, have, have you seen anyone in the public lab network where you've inspired by the creative misuse or kind of local innovation that they've done? Um, have there any, been any stories that stick out in your mind? Oh yeah, I think constantly. Um, I, I think that's that. A lot of the story of public lab is the sort of surprising and interesting ways that people are, you know, mixing it up. Um, I don't know. I mean, just off the top of my head, I, I guess like I can think of um, people who used, you know, like a, a metal salad bowl and and sanded the inside to to make like a, a, a some kind of optical calibration uh, tool to to uh, sort of diffuse light very, very evenly to calibrate a light sensor. Um, I think there's, uh, examples where people have, um, you know, uh, (laughs) this is sort of a fun, a funny one, but, um, someone was trying to take a new type of camera that they hadn't used before and put it on a kite. And, uh, Shannon, I think this was Iman from, from Brooklyn. They, they rubber banded it, I think to like a hello kitty stuffed animal, um, which just, again, was like the fishbone. It was something that happened to be the right shape and size that you can, you could just strap this camera to it and it would hold it in the right orientation to, to take a good picture. Um, stuff like that, I think, you know, comes up a lot. And, but I also think that, um, you know, uh, I, I, I liked, I like seeing when people are pushing at the boundaries of what, you know, like how, how do you do 
it's like not just redesigning the objects, but redesigning the processes around them. Um, people, uh, you know, running two sensors next to each other or, uh, you know, collecting samples of something at the same time as they know someone is uh, collecting data, you know, messing with uh, um, in, in productive and, and critical ways, messing with the way that um, data is, is produced and collected. Uh, and that's sort of less, uh, it, it's less, um, uh, the typical kind of narrative you hear around innovation or around sort of, you know, problem solving. Um, I know that people aren't as into sort of the, the methodological, uh, innovations that people make, uh, maybe it's harder to tell that story, but I think that's a really important one to recognize and one that, that I've often been inspired by. Well, you know, maybe I can add in my public lab story and, and kind of how it, it, got me to think differently. And again, about this methodology and approach, I worked with you all on this youth-led digital mapping project of disaster risks. And leading up to the project, I was obsessed with the geolocation app, mobile app we were going to use. Uh, we got a bunch of budget for it. We, we really put time into it. I was very you know thrilled about it. And then we got into the community and we started doing the uh, aerial mapping with the kites, something really different that changed my perspective happened, which is when the young people went out with the phones in the community, it was a very individual experience. So they went in and they kind of took pictures and they geolocated and that was great. But when they went to do the kite mapping, aerial mapping exercise, the whole community would come out to talk to them. And they said, oh, you know what? All of us, when we were young, used to fly kites. And now you're using this like children's toy to try to change the environment. And it opened up conversation and it got people talking and it got every, the whole community. And I think, Shannon, this goes to your in-person thing. So here I was thinking like, oh, I created this cool tech app thing that's going to be the game changer of the project. And no, it was the whole methodology of the aerial mapping. And, you know, it ended up, I think, later we were able to get other aerial pictures as well. But why we kept doing the kite mapping was because it brought the community together in a conversation. Right. Yes. And I totally agree with that. It's, um, it's something that we see again and again is about, you know, how, how the, the science that we're, we're practicing and using can um, create these intensely social spaces um, and, you know, start conversations and get people excited. Um, and that is of utmost importance. And what I would also add there is, you know, something that now just hearing your story is going back to the origin is you've almost been able to recreate the kind of magic of breaking good together around the BP oil spill, that experience that beyond the technology, uh, the experience that you were able to create and the bonding you had together, something you've now given as a gift to all these communities around the world. Uh, and I like to say that, you know, technology is great, but if you want to sustain yourself breaking good, you have to have that aspect too. Uh, and I think that's a, a lesson for everyone listening is, you know, if you're not creating social community experiences, then your idea will only go so far. It can only have so much impact. So I'm kind of just now reflecting on it, you know, seeing like, okay, I had my own similar experience that you all had. And I, you know, uh, maybe Shannon, I can come back to you. And I mean, can you give us a sense of the scale that you've all reached in now you're almost 10 years? How many countries, how many people do you have any, you know, um, you know, we've done a little bit of the qualitative stories. Do you have any, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, any quantitative or anything, you know, you know, scope you can, you can talk to us about. Um, off the top of my head, uh, I think a, a number that um, I've been I've been thinking about a lot um, that I recently saw uh, a group of people within Public Lab have been doing some really excellent work on on trying to answer that question because in um, in an open source community it's very it's very difficult. Like many times we you know only hear about somebody that has uh, done something related to public lab because, you know, we, we come across it in a, a local meeting in, you know, Bangalore, India, or we, um, we happen upon a blog post that somebody's put up. Um, but, it, you know, Jeff, correct me immediately if I'm wrong, but I, I do think um, that what we have seen is a, a you know, approximately between 15 to 20,000 people um, that have come back to public lab um, at some point. So if that, if that gives us kind of an idea of the, the touchstones that we're having, where we're 
we're not just seeing, you know, one time check out the publiclab.org website, um, but, you know, come back a couple times. You know, I, I think that's probably the, the quantitative number that um, we could potentially measure public lab by. Um, but I would, you know, I, I think this is the, the power mm-hmm. of um, open communities as well as that those people then have extensive networks and local networks of, you know, X more. Um, so it's really, it's, it's hard to know. Um, and I wish I could give you a better answer. No, that's okay. I also work for an open source technology group and we're always struggling with the same question, which is, you know, when you make it open source, the whole idea is that other people pick it up, they remediate it, they make it their own and, you know, they contribute back, but they don't need to tell you how many people did that reach. So um, I totally understand that. But I think the anecdotes that you've told us and, you know, the fact that you're 10 years in going strong is, is you know, uh, something to speak upon itself. Um, Jeff, is there anything you want to add? Maybe again, kind of looking back, is there any cumulative impact that you would speak to over the the almost decade of, of public lab that as you've worked with the team? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I echo Shannon. I, I think um, it's funny, like the things that are easiest to measure are often like the ones that, I mean, we're proud of, but like are not the ones that we want to be able to, you know, to, to, to talk about. I, the quantitative measures are, are so, so sparse, and, and um, you know, but, you know, on the one hand, like, it is like over 15,000 people have like built um, their own spectrometer um, using a public lab kit and uploaded data. I mean, that's, that kind of, you know, that that's a huge number uh, of people, not in terms of just impressions, but who have like built an artifact, built a thing and then measured something with it and, uh, and then shared open source that data. On, on the other hand, I think, like I said, that the more important, um, you know, idea of scale is one of a narrative narrative and of stories. And I think that's where seeing um, all of the different places around the world where people have done projects, where people have, um, you know, uh, told their own stories, um, that's harder to get a a grasp on, but, but I think it's, uh, it's one of the ones that is more meaningful. Um, One, way to do it again imperfect is like on on mapmitter.org the website where you can make maps from your balloon photos uh, we do see just a surprising continuously surprising number of maps from all over the world of all different kinds of things um and and uh when people share the stories more narratively we get to find out a bit more about it and when they don't we see a mysterious map of you know a landfill or a a, a farm or a you know Sometimes like a wedding or, a, you know, a, some other thing that's going on in people's lives uh, that they wanted to tell a story about. Super cool. Uh, well, I appreciate you doing some uh, reflection back at some of the things you've seen over the years um, at Public Lab. Um, so we're getting towards the end of our interview. So I want to bring it back to, uh, you know, a personal question because I believe every great Breaking Good story is personal. So I'm wondering – Today, is there anything new or uh, something you know the audience might be uh, interested to hear about that you're breaking good on today? So I'll go over to you, Shannon, first. Um, and again, this doesn't need to be related to public library work, but you personally, is there anything you're breaking good on? Um, we, you know, we're. I think I've, I feel like I've been a bit reflective as we've been talking over the last hour. Um, and we're in the middle of uh, doing our kind of organizational plan for the next couple of years. And it's really given all of us the opportunity to think about where we're at in this movement. You know, we really, we do see it as a, a movement um, and, uh, you know, kind of be able to um, reflect not only on what we've contributed, but what our role is going forward. Um, so part of what I did today was to, to sit back and, um, you know, I didn't jump on a boat and go out and balloon map. I wish I, I could have done that, but um, to reflect and um, to, to really think about that question. So, um, you know, that we're structuring our work and our trajectory um, and, and the way that it needs to go. Um, and I think, you know, Personally, um, I for me, it's always like the biggest challenge is to just chill out. Um, I'm I'm a really like 
just go, go, go person. Uh, and so once we get off this call, I'm going to go take a walk by the Mississippi River and, um, you know, do my own good. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say the same thing. You know, um, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're working at, um, you know, in this project and this movement, um, it is hard to step back, see it in a, a broader view. Uh, it is hard to, you know, uh, do the kind of um, like su- self-supportive and mutually supportive work also that helps us keep going. Um, and I, you know, I think Shannon should go on that walk. Maybe I'll go on a walk too. <laughs> I think that's a comment that actually I've heard in all my interviews, which is, you know, those who break the rules that shatter the norms that do the work, it takes a toll on the individual. And if you want to be able to do it long term, you have to take care of yourself. And you can't forget that the mental wellness, um, the, you know, my thing is I've gotten into yoga, um, which I never thought as a basketball player and like an athlete that I'd ever, you know, get into that. But for me, it's like that quiet time to just be introspective. Um, and I think in a connected world, it's easy to say we can always be going um, and that, oh, the people who are doing the most are always doing. But I think that what I've heard now is a common thread through all our interviews is that if you want to continue to have things to break good on, you need to take care of yourself. You need to take that time uh, for walks along the Mississippi River. So maybe in that spirit, I'll take a walk uh, myself and maybe all of our listeners when they're done in that spirit should, uh, after they listen to this, if they're not on a walk right now, when they're done, um, go and do that. Uh, okay. So we come to our final question cause we're almost at our hour here. Now you, you've both been really open, honest, inspirational. So I'm wondering what advice you would give to someone who's maybe just starting out in their career or mid career and deciding they want to move towards purpose, uh, Maybe they're looking for small ways to break good on the environment. Uh, they start to care about things like climate change. Uh, Shane, I'll go to you first. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who is just starting to think about breaking good? Sure. Um, I think a lot of the uh, social issues um, and you know environmental issues that we face can seem enormous and are enormous. Uh, climate change is a perfect example of that. Um, And I would want, I I think I have a couple points here is I would encourage everybody to be hopeful and know that um, even like the very small moments that you contribute to your, your presence um, and the, um, the activity that you put forward do matter. And, you know, so finding something that can localize these massive issues um, is a really great starting point. Uh, I think also as um, you know, when, when we had this um, administration change a couple of years ago, I, I remember feeling just like overwhelmed by everything. It wasn't just the things that Public Lab was focused on that were bothering me. It was, you know, uh, immigration. It was the prison system. It was, I mean, it was just so many things. Um, and somebody said to me, like, you, if you wear yourself down like this, you're not going to be of value to all of the work that we have ahead of us. So pick two to three things and own those and and make them what you spend your time contributing to and focusing on. And uh, I think that for me has been an incredibly powerful uh, lesson to to say, like, I care about everything that's happening in the world, but I I am going to give my all to a couple of things and I'm going to do it really, really well. Um, and that's what I would, you know, suggest to others who are starting to think about like where, where their place is to, to give in this world. All right, Jeff, over to you. Yeah, I, I would say like, um, it's easy to think that what you're doing has never been done before, but I think it's more important to see what we do as part of existing movements and not just to see it that way, but to work to make sure that it is that way. Um, you know, new ideas are, are good and, and uh, not accepting sort of historical inequalities or historical systemic issues, uh, at, you know, for what they are, uh, but calling them out and challenging them is good. But on the flip side, there's also long-term movements that, um, you know, that, have existed and are just waiting for everyone else to wake up and join up. So, you know, I think that's an important part of the spirit 
Uh, and it's something that should be inspiring. It's something, you know, there, there's people out there who are just waiting for you to show up. Waiting, <laughs> you're working super hard. But, well, yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're ahead. And, and uh, you know, I think there should be something that's uh, like energizing about that. Great. Well, Shannon, any last, do you want to put in the last word before we end? Uh, no, just thanks so much for taking the time. This has been a, a really fun conversation. Um, and I, I always like going back and reminiscing and then, you know, kind of being reflective of where we've come since then. We well, I want to thank Shannon and Jeff for their time. Congratulate them on 10 years of Public Lab. You can check them out in their community on publiclab.org. Uh, thanks again. And thanks to our listeners. Now it's time to go out and have your own reflective walk in nature. So we'll catch you next time. But life still goes on I can't get used to living without Living without, living without you By my side